Today's scripture reading is in John 13, uh, it's verses 21 through 30, so uh, feel free to follow along on the screen or in your own Bibles. When Jesus had said this, he was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. The disciples started looking at one another, uncertain which one he was speaking about. One of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, was reclining close beside Jesus. Simon Peter motioned to him to find out who it was he was talking about. So he leaned back against Jesus and asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus replied, he's the one I give the piece of bread to after I have dipped it. When he had dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son. After Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered him. So Jesus told him, what you're doing, do it quickly. None of those reclining at the table knew why he said this to him. Since Judas kept the money bag, some thought that Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the festival, or that he should give something to the poor. After receiving the piece of bread, he immediately left, and it was night. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Preston, Brandon. My name is Drew Moss, and I work uh, with the college ministry here at Sunnybrook, we call it the table, uh, but I want you to know uh, I am really grateful for the ministry of our brothers and sisters at Stumo. College students, there is a, a number of really great ministries represented even in this congregation from uh, Stumo to NAVS to Crew, some really good stuff, okay? Um, and... And then there are really just no shortage of great places to plug in. If you are a student, we want to encourage you to, to plug yourself into a solid campus ministry and plug yourself into a solid church while you're here. Those things are huge. Uh, we're in John 13. You just heard read to you today. If you didn't already go there in your Bibles, you can, or it will be on the screen. Uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, I was reading about these series of slaughterhouses, these processing plants uh, that sit in the little villages dotted around the city of Cambridge in England. And uh, these slaughterhouses, they process all kinds of different meat, all kinds of different animals, but one of the primary animals that they bring through those processing facilities is sheep. And, and so every like, few days, these big truckloads full of sheep come, on, come in to drop off at each of these different factories. But they, they've had this problem there, or they did for a while, this problem with the sheep, where when they would pull the big trucks up uh, to drop them all off, something in the air, I don't know if they could smell it, I don't know what it was, but the, the sheep could sense danger. They could sense that this was not the place we want to be, and so all of them would huddle towards that little front end of the truck and refuse to go down the ramp into the plant. Somewhere along the line, of course, you know, by the way, actually, if, if you've seen uh, sheep, or if you were here like a year and a half ago where we brought a sheep out on stage, Jim and poor Kyle Butler uh, with a sheep on stage, you know that uh, if a sheep does not want to do something, it is hard to get it to do that thing. Uh, they're skittish, and they're stubborn, and they're surprisingly strong. Either that or Kyle is really weak. I don't know, but one of those two things wasn't working very well up there. But, uh, so, so they had to come up with this plan, and somebody had an idea. And that is that they brought, uh, one of the, uh, they, they brought one of the sheep in on a truck, and one of them, as they pulled it off, they pulled it to the side, and they allowed it to live. And not just live, but to live there on the grounds of the slaughterhouse. 
to, to have freedom to kind of roam around and graze there and, and to have a nice warm place to sleep at night till it grew to, to love this place. This place is home. It loved it. And, and then what they would do is every time they bring a truck full of sheep in, they'd lower the ramp, and the first thing they do is they bring that sheep, that one sheep, up onto the truck. And it kind of stands up there for a second, and then it happily turns around and walks right back down the ramp to its home. And all the other sheep see this, and they go, oh, I guess, I guess it's cool. He says it's cool. And so they begin to make their way down the ramp as well, every last one of them, to their doom. And they've come up with this name, actually, for the sheep that leads all the other sheep to their own destruction. They call that sheep Judas. It's the night of Passover in Jerusalem. And just a short time before this, the religious leaders there in Jerusalem have come to a decision that that something must be done about this Jesus guy. We've got to get rid of him. Things are getting too big. It's, It's time for him to go. Now listen, they've been talking about this for years. This isn't a new thing, but now it's gotten real because Jesus isn't just doing his ministry up in Galilee where he's been most of the time. He's actually moved down in recent weeks, months into the region of Judea where Jerusalem is, and he's doing quite a few things there, and more and more people are wanting to listen and follow him. And just a short time earlier in Jerusalem's backyard, Bethany, like right over the hill, Jesus raised a man named Lazarus from the dead, and word spreads about something like that. And so more and more people are clamoring to see and hear Jesus, and so now it's time for action, and the Sanhedrin, the official ruling council made up of 71 elders of Israel, comes together to make a decision about this. We read about it in John 11, starting in verse 47, this meeting, it says, so the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and were saying, what are we going to do since this man is doing many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. The fear is that if enough people begin to believe that this Jesus really is the Messiah, they're going to get all worked up and excited and want to start a rebellion against Rome, and they're going to raise up an army, and then Rome does not take kindly to things like that. They will come in and squash that thing without mercy. They'll make an example of of us, and, and we can't have that. Now, that's part of their fear. The the other fear, John will tell us a chapter or two later, is they really just hate that so many people are leaving them to go to Jesus. So Caiaphas, the high priest, stands up in this meeting, and he says, listen, you don't get it. The time for talk is over. Something has to be done. If we're going to save our nation, this man has got to die. There's just one problem. That's that they don't know how to get their hands on Jesus. There's nowhere, no place that they can just grab him because he's not actually staying in Jerusalem. He's staying out in this small little village in the countryside called Ephraim and sometimes in Bethany. And, and a lot of days he actually comes into Jerusalem and he's there on, during the daytime, but they can't go arrest him then because he's always surrounded by this crowd of people that's clamoring to hear him and is really fascinated by him. And they're afraid that if they arrest Jesus in front of those people, it'll start some kind of a riot. No, they need to find a time. They need to find a place where Jesus is alone. They can grab him then. They just don't know how to do that. And then they catch a break. We read about this break in Matthew 26, verse 14. 
Then one of the twelve, the man called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they weighed out 30 pieces of silver for him, and from that time he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. And that opportunity arrives on the night of the Passover because on this night, Jesus is staying in Jerusalem. This night, he's there to share that Passover meal with his disciples. And Judas knows that this is his chance. Jesus does too. As a matter of fact, just a few moments ago, Jesus had gotten down on his knees and he had went around to each of his disciples with a bowl and a towel, washing all of their feet. And then when he's done, he stands up wraps his cloak back around him, and he begins to explain to his disciples what he's just done and how they, as his disciples, ought to respond to that. And then he pauses, and he says, "Uh, not all of you, actually, because Jesus knows that not every one of them in there is an actual disciple. That's what leads us to our text today, and we just heard it read, so I won't read all of it, but I do want to read a couple places to you, starting in verse 21. When Jesus had said this, he was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. The disciples started looking at one another, uncertain which one he was speaking about. Now, Judas, or Jesus, knows not only that he's going to be betrayed, he knows that Judas is going to be the one to do it. He's been predicting this betrayal for some time now, and we read all the way back in John chapter 6, verse 64, John tells us that Jesus actually knew from the beginning who would betray him. So this is no surprise to him. He sees it coming. His disciples, however, do not. And they are completely caught off guard and they have no idea who he might be talking about when he says these things. I think that that's interesting. I think it's fascinating that when he says someone will betray me, there's no one in that room who goes, it's got to be Judas. Because there's no one in there thinking in that moment, man, Judas has been acting different than us. Man, Judas doesn't uh, preach like us. Man, Judas doesn't do the things we do. No, no, no. Apparently, Judas looked so much like the rest of them that there were no doubts in their mind about him. In fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that when Jesus said these words, they questioned themselves before they questioned Judas. It's not me, is it? Hope it's not me. Jesus knows even if they do not. And and as they're sitting there and this kind of buzz is in the room murmuring amongst each other, Peter makes eye contact with John who is sitting right next to Jesus. In this text, he calls himself, not John, but he calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. That's actually what John always calls himself in this gospel. And Peter looks at him and he gives him this kind of nod like, hey, ask him. Who is it? We, We gotta know. And so John, sitting next to Jesus, leans into him and asks, whispers this question, who are you talking about? Jesus whispers back to John, it's the one that I hand this piece of bread to. And he dips the bread, and he puts it into the hand of Judas. And we read in verse 27, after Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered him. So Jesus told him, what you're doing, do quickly. And none of those reclining at the table knew why he said this to him. 
Since Judas kept the money bag, some thought that Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the festival, or that he should give something to the poor. This was a common practice on the night of Passover, is that you go out that evening and give alms to the poor. So maybe that's what he's talking about. Even after Jesus makes this statement about a betrayer and then directly says something to Judas, they still don't suspect him. And then Judas stands up, and John adds this key statement, verse 30. After receiving the piece of bread, he immediately left, and it was night. Virtually every scholar agrees that that statement right there is more than just a time stamp. It's not just telling you what time it is. John has been setting up this whole theme from the very beginning of his book, this contrast between light and darkness, and that the world is a dark place full of sin, and yet Jesus has come as the light of the world and brought that there, and as much as the darkness tries to stop and overcome him, it cannot be done. And so the implied question all the way through the Gospel of John is, which side will you choose? Will you move to light or to darkness? In this moment in verse 30, Judas basically gives a physical description, a physical illustration of what is going on in his heart as he turns his back on the light of the world and makes his way out into the darkness. There are few figures in all of history more tragic than Judas. And in some ways, there are few figures that are more intriguing than Judas. People have tried for so long to get their minds around this man. What is it about Judas? Who is this guy? Why does he do the thing that he does? What motivates him? What makes him tick? And, and unfortunately with Judas, there's really a lot more question than there are answers. But we do know a handful of things as we read through the scriptures about Judas. Here's what we know. Number one, the most obvious one, the big one, Judas betrayed Jesus. In all four Gospels, this is the very first thing that is said about Judas. Every time he gets introduced, the first thing they say about him is he betrayed Jesus. And actually, they can hardly mention his name from there on out without adding that statement. Judas, comma, who betrayed Jesus. Judas, comma, who would betray the Lord. Judas, comma, the traitor. Over and over again, this gets said about him. There's actually two big things that get said about Judas over and over again, but this is the main one. The only time they don't say, comma, who betrayed him, is when they're actually describing the act of betrayal, as we see here in John chapter 13. And he does this, of course, by leading the authorities to Gethsemane, this place where Jesus would frequent with his disciples to talk and to pray. And it's a place that only he and his disciples knew they were going, but it's the ideal place for an arrest because it sits outside the city. There's no one around. It happens in the middle of the night, and so they're free to grab him without worry of any sort of commotion or riot that might take place. The second thing we know about Judas, he's the son of Simon Iscariot. Uh, the other writers just call him Judas Iscariot, but, but John designates his father Simon. We don't really know anything else about Simon except for this. And there are a lot of people who've tried to glean some sort of information off of this name Iscariot, thinking maybe that will point to some sort of origins, his hometown or his profession or his political leanings or whatever it will be, but no one can really nail anything down for certain about him. Probably the main reason that they give him this name or refer to it over and over again is to differentiate him from all the other Judases. Judas was actually a pretty common name back then. Uh, Jesus has a brother named Judas that we read about. 
Uh, he also has another disciple, one of the 12, who is also called Judas. John will refer to him in just a couple chapters. In John 14, he'll come up and he'll refer to him as Judas, parentheses, not Iscariot, which you know is how that dude introduced himself for the rest of his life, right? Uh, hi, my name is Judas, not Iscariot. It's the other guy. I'm the good Judas, okay? Just always clarifying that, but there was many of them, and so we use this name often. Third thing we know about Judas, he kept the money bag. He was in charge of the communal funds that Jesus and his disciples used to pay for their needs, to pay for lodging or food or whatever might arrive at any given moment. John mentions that here in our text in verse 29. But he also mentions that chap in chapter 12 where we learn the fourth thing about Judas, that he was a thief. John says there that Mary gets down at this house to wash Jesus' feet, and when she does, she breaks open this very expensive jar of perfume. And, and J uh, Judas objects to this and goes, this is a waste. I mean, that, that jar could have been sold for a year's worth of wages, and the money could have been given to the poor. And then John inserts in his own little editorial comment, Judas didn't say this because he cared about the poor. But as a thief and as the keeper of the money bag, he often stole from that bag for himself. And so in this place, we get a little bit of information. We get to see a little bit of what makes this man tick. Fifth. We know that Judas regretted betraying Jesus. We're told that in Matthew 27, verses 3 and 4, that in the moment when Jesus is pronounced as guilty and it is announced that he will be executed, when he is condemned and they begin to walk him off, in that moment, Matthew says that Judas is, uh, quote, full of remorse, overwhelmed by what he's done as he realizes the wrong. And he runs back to the chief leaders and, and tries to give the money back. He says, I shouldn't have done this. This is wrong. I don't want the money. Take it. And he says to them, I have betrayed innocent blood. I think that's kind of interesting. He doesn't say, I have betrayed the Messiah. He doesn't say, I've betrayed the Son of God. He says, I've betrayed innocent blood. At any rate, he feels terrible about it. So much so that he goes off and takes his own life. He hangs himself. Sixth thing we know about Judas. He was one of the 12. Now you may think, that that's kind of obvious and not worth saying, but the gospel writers would disagree with you on that one. In fact, they take pains to stress this fact over and over again. I told you there are two big things that the writers keep saying about Judas. One is that he betrayed him. The second thing they keep saying over and over is that he was one of the 12. Or the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they all say this very thing about him as he walks into the garden to betray Jesus. Judas, one of the 12 came into the garden. And what's really fascinating about this is that phrase is used almost never for any of the other disciples. Only used once, actually, for Thomas in John chapter 20 when it says that Jesus appeared after his resurrection to the disciples and Thomas, one of the 12, was not there. But that's the only time it's used. You will never read the words, Peter, one of the 12. You will never read the words, John, one of the 12. Andrew, James, one of the 12. No, 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 this is almost exclusively used for Judas, which leads me to believe that it's on purpose. The gospel writers are saying this to make a point, to stress the fact that this is someone who was close to Jesus. It's almost like you should read those words in italics. Judas, one of the 12, betrayed him. 
Someone close to him, someone who knew him. Think about that for a minute. Think about all the things that Judas experienced over the three plus years of walking with Jesus. This this is a man who had a front row seat to Jesus' ministry. The famous, world famous Sermon on the Mount talked about by people, not just Christians, but by people from all kinds of different faiths as this huge moment. Judas was there. He heard that firsthand from the mouth of Jesus. Uh, Judas sat in the room and listened as Jesus told parables for the first time. And then he got to be a part of the 12 who sat in the room when Jesus explained those parables more fully. Judas witnessed over and over again the many miracles of Jesus as he healed blind people and deaf people and lame people and he removed fevers and then he watched as he would cast demons out of people. Judas passed out the bread that Jesus was miraculously multiplying to feed 5,000 people. Judas sat in a boat and freaked out with the other 12 disciples as a storm nearly capsized them out on the Sea of Galilee. And then he freaked out in a whole new way as Jesus said three words to the ocean and watched it stop. Judas was there in Bethany. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, think of all the things he saw, but not just the things he saw, the things he did. Luke chapter 9 tells this story that Jesus actually at one point commissions the disciples to go out into the surrounding villages and preach the good news of the kingdom. And when he sends them out, it says that he also gave them authority to cast out demons and heal people. And they go out and then they do that. And we have no indicators that Judas did not do those things. From everything we can tell, Judas did those things. I believe he did because if Judas had not preached when everyone else was preaching, then as soon as Jesus says, someone's going to betray me, all the other 12 would go, it's Judas. He's the only one who didn't preach with us. Or it's Judas, he's the only one who couldn't perform miracles. Or it's Judas, he's the only one who couldn't cast out demons. But they don't say that, which leads me to believe he did all of those things. He didn't just see things. He didn't just do things. He also experienced a connection to Jesus that so few people ever would have. He got to walk with this man for three years. He sat and shared meals with Jesus. He conversed with Jesus. He laughed with Jesus. He sat there at the table as the Son of God knelt down and washed his feet. And then he got up on those freshly cleaned feet and walked out the door. That's what makes Judas not just a tragic figure, but also kind of scary. Because Judas demonstrates for us that it is possible to be that close to Jesus, close enough for him to wash your feet and still miss him. It's possible to be that close and still reject him, to be that connected to him and still have a heart that grows cold towards him. You know that, right? You know that it's possible to go to church every day of your life and hear from Jesus' word over and over again and be surrounded by God's people and still miss Jesus. That it's possible to grow up in a Christian home and still turn your back on him. That it's possible to do ministry and to preach the gospel and to serve in church and then still ultimately reject him. You say, no, Judas, Judas was unique. I mean, it, it takes a special kind of evil. It takes a special kind of wickedness to do the kind of thing Judas would do that close to him. No. Listen, the sin that Judas committed was unique. But his heart was not. 
His path is not unique. Jesus actually warns that there will be many who fit in the category of Judas. He says, Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name? The very things Judas was doing in Luke chapter 9, then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. But it's not just here. We see warnings like this throughout the New Testament. The writer of Hebrews talks about people who will taste the heavenly gift and who will share in the Holy Spirit and who will experience all the good blessings of the fellowship of believers and then they'll fall away from that. The Apostle Paul speaks to the Corinthians and, and warns them, this, this group of Christians who've experienced so many amazing things through the Holy Spirit, so many really cool things, and now they're dabbling in idolatry and not going all in, just tiny little things and, and things that really aren't that big of a deal. And honestly, from their opinion, what they're saying is they know, they know too much. They're too mature to really get bogged down and dragged down by this stuff. It's not going to be an issue for us, Paul. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, be careful. Let the one who thinks he's too strong, let the one who thinks he's stand, be careful lest he fall. Here's what we don't know about Judas. Why he did it. I mean, there are a lot of things, actually, we don't know about Judas, but this is the big one, right? This is the one that everybody wants to know why, after all he witnessed and experienced, and after all he did, he still turns his back on Jesus. Now, there are theories. Uh, many believe that, that Judas was probably actually on board at first with Jesus because he sees this man who might be the Messiah, and, and he's got this visions of the Messiah doing what everybody thought he would do, which is, which is raise up kind of an, an army and, and a revolution, and, and that he would finally throw off Rome's oppressive shackles and free the people of Israel and restore them to their former glory. And then as time goes on, Judas begins to slowly realize that Jesus' agenda is not Judas' agenda. And he begins to be disillusioned with this imposter. And he goes and he turns him in. There are others who think that actually Judas wasn't trying to get Jesus killed. He was actually just trying to kind of help things along. The, the movement was going too slow. And Judas just thinks if, if he can start the confrontation, if he can be kind of a match that sparks everything and gets it going, then Jesus will be forced to show his full power and to go into like full attack mode and make everything happen. And that was his intention. It just got out of hand. There are some who believe that Judas is the only one who really got Jesus who knew that Jesus needed to die, and so he does this to help Jesus' plan go forward. Now, that first theory, that Judas misunderstood Jesus' messiahship, that, that one makes sense, because we know that a lot of Jesus' disciples actually misunderstood what he meant by being the Messiah. That makes sense, we just don't know. The second two theories, that Judas was just trying to help him, those ones don't really hold. You've you got to kind of disregard some key truths from Scripture in order to believe those. Because the Bible does tell us at least two things, two hints about Judas's possible motivation for doing this. The first, it seems that greed was a factor. We know that Judas likes money, likes it enough that he's willing to steal from his own friends. And of course, when he goes to the chief priest, he doesn't go for nothing. 
He goes to them and asks him, what are you willing to give me? What's he worth to you? So that seems to be something, but, but still the amount that he actually settles on, 30 pieces of silver, I mean, it's, it's a decent amount of money, but it's not a ton. They say 30 pieces of silver is like the equivalent of about $7,500, which in today's economy would buy you roughly three gallons of milk right now, right? <laughs> but the basic idea, though, we know is even though this is a good amount of money, it's, it's not like a ton of money. It doesn't seem like that's a good enough reason to do what he did. There had to be something else. The second hint we get about Judas is that Satan was at work in him. John tells us this twice in chapter 13. In verse 2, when he says that Satan put it into his heart to betray Jesus, and in verse 27, when it says Satan entered him, Luke will tell us something similar in chapter 22 of his book. And so there's some who have wondered, maybe Judas is like possessed by the devil here. That's what's going on. He's possessed and moved towards these things. The problem with that is that this does not look like any other form of demon possession that we see in the Bible. Every time in the Bible someone is possessed by an evil spirit, uh, they, they either lose all control of their mind or they lose control of their body or both. And none of that seems to be happening with Judas. He's not painted as some sort of uh, helpless pawn in Satan's scheme. The Bible writers consistently hold him accountable for the things that he has done. I, I like what New Testament scholar Gary Burge says. He says that Judas is not so much possessed as he is slowly absorbed by sin, slowly absorbed by Satan. He actually says these words that Judas flirts with the darkness to such a degree that he becomes one of its own. That somewhere along the line, Judas made a wrong turn, whether it was choosing to steal from that money bag for the first time or, or some bit of bitterness or anger that sets in towards Jesus or towards the others. And rather, in that moment, rather than repenting and turning back, he chooses to boldly press forward, to continue to go further and further in until even when he is standing in direct proximity to the light of the world, he still chooses the darkness. And in that way, I believe that Judas serves as a warning to all of us to not follow that same path. That we would not, like Judas, flirt with the darkness, treating unrepentant sin as an insignificant thing. That we would not be those people who stand in this room on Sunday mornings and sing, Lord, Lord, to Jesus, and then they walk out the door and refuse to obey him with the rest of their week. That we would not be the kinds of people who let our own agendas, like politics or some cause, even a good cause, slowly win out over Jesus' agenda. That we would not coast on our past experiences of Jesus or on our family heritage of faith or on the good deeds that we have done in the past. Brothers and sisters, the Christian life is not something we coast through. It's not something we drift through. It does not happen on accident. We are to be vigilant in our commitment to Christ. We should be mindful about our affections. We should be aware that there are spiritual realities at work, that there is an enemy who has come to steal and kill and destroy, and he will do whatever he can to undermine your commitment to Jesus. At the table this year in our college ministry, we're going to be walking through the writings of Peter, looking at some of the gospel stories about him and then at his letters, First and Second Peter. And so kind of in preparation for this, I've just kind of personally been reading through First Peter recently, and I've been struck 
by how often Peter talks like this, these kinds of warnings. Peter calls his readers exiles. And what he means is that as Christians living in a broken, sinful world, they don't belong here. This is not their home. They belong, their home is in heaven. And so he says, as exiles, you have to be on the ready. You have to be alert. You can't expect to just kind of float through and things will be fine. And so he says over and over again things like this, like in chapter one, where he says, therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Or in chapter two, dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. They are not harmless vices. They are not just bad habits. They are waging war against your soul. Or in chapter four, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Or in chapter five, be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. The warning is clear. Do not be caught off guard. And Peter knows a thing or two about being caught off guard. Remember, there's more than one disciple who sinned against Jesus on that Passover night. Judas would betray him. But Peter, after talking a really big game about how committed he was to Christ, about how he was going to stand by him all the way through, Peter would deny him three times. And both of these men were devastated by their sins, overwhelmed with guilt and shame. But while Peter, or while Judas ends up taking his own life in shame, Peter eventually finds redemption and restoration. Why is that? That's because of this one last thing we know about Judas. Seven, he ran to the wrong place to deal with his sins. We know this, that Judas, after he does these things, he feels guilty. He feels terrible for the things he does. So he tries, it seems, to find a way to undo it. He goes back to the chief priest, to the chief elders, and goes, take this. I don't, I don't want the money anymore. I shouldn't have done this. You take it back. They won't take it. They know it's blood money. They say, no, 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 a deal is a deal. And so he can't get them to take it back. And so he runs, where can he run? He runs to the temple of God. And maybe there, if he can just kind of get rid of it there, and he doesn't know what to do with it, no one's gonna take it. And so he just heaves the money into the temple doors, hoping maybe that will relieve the pain. And that doesn't cut it either. And so eventually going off, tried to deal with his sin himself, he ends up hanging himself. And this is the biggest tragedy about Judas. The greatest tragedy is not that he sinned, as terrible as that was. The greatest tragedy is that when he recognized his sin, he ran in the wrong direction. The great tragedy of Judas is that for all that he experienced of Jesus in his ministry, he missed the best part. He missed the part where Jesus hung on a tree, looking out over his enemies, asking his father to forgive them, and then making a way for that forgiveness when he breathed his last breath on the cross. He missed the sound of the veil tearing from top to bottom in the temple, signifying this fact that God has made a way for wicked, evil people to come back into the presence of God. He missed Jesus' resurrection where he conquered the sin that entangles us and destroyed the death that paralyzes us in fear. What Judas missed was a grace and mercy that is always bigger than our sin, always deeper than our shame. Listen, we will all 
fail at times. We will all stumble. We will all, like Judas, make sinful decisions that we deeply regret. Decisions that bury us in guilt, that we wish we could forget, that we hope never comes to the light of the day. We'll have these moments where we see that our actions over the last day or week or month have not matched up with our words. We'll have these moments where we look back and we realize that slowly our hearts have been drifting away from Jesus. And the question when those things happen is simply this, when you see your sin, which direction will you run? Will you do what Judas did early on? Will you withdraw yourself from the light, fearful that your sins will be exposed, trying to keep it hidden and away from others, while all the while slowly being absorbed by it? Will you do what Judas did towards the end, running around trying to make it right? If I can just do enough good things, I could prove to myself and, and others and hopefully God that really I'm still a good person. Or will you run to the one person whose mercies are new every morning, whose compassion for repeat offenders never fails, who died for you before you even knew you needed it? This is the hope for you. Yes, brothers and sisters, I want to encourage us all to stand vigilant in our faith. I want to encourage all of us to not be lackadaisical about our commitment to Jesus, but in those moments when we realize that we have, the biggest encouragement today is this, run to the great and merciful high priest who stands ready to forgive, whose grace is bigger than all of your sins. That's what we do actually every week in communion this reminder for us of a Messiah who would come and die in our place, bearing, covering even our deepest sins. I think it's kind of interesting, actually, for, for all the different things that Peter says about standing ready and being alert and look out because the devil is prowling around, what, what Peter never says is be anxious. Peter never says, worry all the time that you might lose your salvation. He never says that. Because Peter, even though he wants us to not be, you know, cavalier about our own commitment to Christ, he knows that we can be confident about his commitment to us. And so the very, the very one who wrote these words about being alert and being vigilant and being sober-minded, he also wrote these words at the very beginning of his letter. And I love these. This is from 1 Peter 1. It won't be on the screen. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5, Peter says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Verse 5, you are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. What Peter recognizes is that in Christ there is a grace not just big enough to cover your sins, but a grace big enough to guard you as you try to fight your sins. That God is committed to helping you stay faithful. And when you fail, he always comes to forgive in Jesus. That is why we come together to celebrate this. Brothers and sisters, this is Christ's body, broken, for us, let's take together. And this is his blood poured out for the forgiveness of my many sins, of your many sins, of our sins. Let's drink.
together in gratitude. And now, let's stand and sing about a God whose mercy is always bigger than our sin.